Good morning. It's good to see y'all this morning. Uh, I pray that you have had a good week, a good holiday weekend. Um, happy Independence Day weekend. I know that uh, the 4th was yesterday, but we still celebrate and are very thankful uh, for the freedoms that we have. This morning, if you have your Bibles, let me invite you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 4. That's where we'll be looking this morning as we continue our way through Daniel and seeing some of these narrative texts. We're going to see another one today. Seem very similar to those of you that remember Daniel chapter 2 in some ways, different in some others. But uh, one thing that we sang just a little bit ago was, My heart will sing no other name. Jesus, and uh, we're going to see a reminder in this text of how important that is, how we should be doing that, I pray that we'd also be able to evaluate whether or not we've been doing that well. So, and in Daniel chapter 4, the first three verses we're going to spend some time looking at this Wednesday night. Uh, it's, it's King Nebuchadnezzar himself giving first-hand praise to God. And uh, we're not going to spend much time today. It seems like it's uh, an out-of-place text. It seems like in a chapter that you're going to see in a minute is largely centering around a king who doesn't give the accolades to God that he should, a king that is self-centered rather than pointing to God, for the chapter to begin with a few verses of praise to God from that king seems very out of place. But we'll spend some time Wednesday night uh, helping you see not only that in its context, but also as an example for us. But this morning, the majority of Daniel chapter 4 centers around a dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had. So I say it may remind you of Daniel chapter 2. So King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Uh, it, it worries him. It makes him anxious again. And so he's called in the wise men, and they're not able to interpret it. So he wants Daniel. He remembers Daniel's ability to interpret dreams. He wants Daniel. Daniel comes in, and so we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning looking at this dream. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to see what the dream was, what the actual dream was, the interpretation of the dream, what it meant. So what the dream was, what the dream meant, and then we'll finish by seeing how that applies to us. How does his dream and the meaning of that dream for him change your life tomorrow, today, the way that you live next week? We'll finish by looking at a couple of specific application points for that. So we'll go back and forth this morning. It's another one of those texts where the, the king himself explains what he saw in the dream first. And then after that, Daniel says the interpretation of the dream, the vision of the dream. So we'll see Daniel speaking some about the dream. We'll see the king speaking some, but I'll make sure and try and point out who it is each time. We're going to start with Daniel, though. So if you, look, if you would, look with me in Daniel chapter 4, verse 20. It says, after the king has said his dream, we'll look back at some of his saying in a minute. But this is more Daniel showing the dream and its meaning. Verse 20 says, The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and whose branches the birds of the heaven lived. It is you, O king." You have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. 
So, so we see here Daniel's giving us two things. He's giving us a little bit of the dream itself and a little bit of the meaning, and that's going to help us here with point one. But so in the dream, the dream starts out, and there's this tree. And this tree grows larger than any tree you've ever seen, and so it, it reaches all the way to the sky, and it's a beautiful tree. It's described as being this, it, it has beautiful leaves, and it's a beautiful tree. And, and not only in appearance, but in the way this tree plays out, it's beautiful because it gives shade to the beast of the field, and it gives the birds a place to land and nest, and all the birds live in this tree, and all the beasts rest in its shade, and the tree gives food to everybody. Everybody is able to eat because of the amount of food that this tree produces, and it's this just serene, beautiful picture of this tree that's so large that it can be seen from the entire earth. And then we see in verse 22, Daniel saying specifically, that tree... This beautiful big tree that everybody sees and everybody recognizes and everyone benefits from, that's you, King. King Nebuchadnezzar, that's you. And, and as, as I read that, that's, that's startling to me. It's a stark contrast from what I would expect whenever I see a tree that's that big and that beautiful and that's described this well and that gives this many benefits to this many people and this many things. I would think that in Scripture that would only ever be a, a metaphor for God. But it's not. Here, this is the king. King Nebuchadnezzar is this tree. And that's the first point of this text today. Point one, the Lord had blessed Nebuchadnezzar greatly. I mean, the Lord had given Nebuchadnezzar blessings that no one else had. Right? He's, he's king of Babylon. And I want us to recognize how great things were for the king of Babylon, for the people of Babylon. So it's the, the largest nation in the world, exceedingly rich. I can't explain how rich this nation was and how rich this king was. I was reading uh, just this morning Herodotus and the history's talking about it, and he said that the king had, and this is if, if you take out the horses that they use for the army and for the war, but just personally... The king had over 16,000 horses himself. And all, I mean, just go on and on about the riches of this king and of this nation. And of course, they have the strongest army in the world, and they've conquered everything basically that you can conquer. The, almost the entire known world was part of the Babylonian kingdom at this point in time. They had all the food they want, no one in Babylon was ever hungry. Right, the, uh, They were protected from everyone by their walls and by their army. They had all the workers they wanted. They, they lacked nothing. And King Nebuchadnezzar was the king of all of that. And so when you think about a kingdom this big, a nation this big, that things are this good for, and you're the man that runs it. You call the shots. You make the laws. You're the general of the army. Every bit of it, that's King Nebuchadnezzar. For me, it's hard to wrap my mind around. Hard to wrap my mind around there being one man on earth who is clear-cut, head and shoulders above everyone else. He has more power than anyone else. He has more influence than anyone else. He has more riches than anyone else. But that's what life was like for King Nebuchadnezzar. God had blessed him in these ways. And, and it's going to be clear as we look through the scripture that God was the one that had done this. God was the one that had raised up this big, beautiful tree of King Nebuchadnezzar. God is the one that had allowed him to be what he was. 
but one of the conflicts or problems that we see in this text is that God had brought him to such great heights, but Nebuchadnezzar didn't recognize God as the one that had brought him there. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't look and say, look what God has done for me. Look how good God is. Look how powerful God is. But instead, Nebuchadnezzar, we'll see in the text in a little bit, looks around and says, look what I've done. Man, I've built a kingdom, haven't I? Look at me. I am extremely impressive. And so that's what leads to the next part of the dream. The first part seems so serene and beautiful and calm, and it's this nice, beautiful tree. But I want you to look back at, at Nebuchadnezzar now. Look back at verse 13. I want you to hear from him, because you can hear from me, I can hear a little bit of how distraught he is at this next part. There's this big, beautiful tree, and it's him, and he has to be so excited about that. But then in verse 13, he continued talking about the dream. King said, I saw in the visions of my, ha- my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, and that's an angel here, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Now that's a, that's a stark contrast. Right, you've got this, the dream starts and it's so beautiful and it's this nice tree and everything's enjoying this tree and all of a sudden this angel comes down and he says, oh, the angel may talk about how beautiful the tree is and no, the angel says, chop that tree down and strip it bare and let all the beasts run and scatter and let all the food be gone and let every bit of this be completely torn down. And whenever you recognize that the tree is now not just a tree, but it's actually a metaphor for the king, this has to be startling. Because now we're seeing that this king that God has brought up to great heights is now going to be brought down in an exceedingly terrible fashion. The king that God has brought up and lifted and made glorious and amazing and rich and powerful is now going to have all of that removed from him. He's going to be humbled. And again, if you look back at verses 24 and 25, as Daniel's interpreting what the dream means, he tells us that the king is going to lose his mind. His mental faculties are going to be gone from him, and that he'll leave Babylon and go out into the wilderness, and he'll crawl around on the ground, and he'll get wet with the dew of the ground, and he'll eat grass like an ox, and live in the wild like a wild animal. This king that had all of these great power and riches is now going to lose his mind and go live out in the wild like a wild animal. And now I know, because I see how some of you are looking at me. Like, all right, Brother Zach, I believe most of the things that we're reading in the book of Daniel, but I really feel like you've jumped the shark here. Like, y'all are waiting for me to say, I'm just kidding, that's not really what it says. Because it seems like, all right, Brother Zach, you want me to believe that the strongest, richest, most powerful man in the world, who has led this kingdom for years, for decades, to be the strongest nation in the world, is just all of a sudden going to lose his mind and go crawl around on the ground and eat grass like he's an ox. You want me to believe that? And I do. I want you to believe that. Why? Because it's what God's Word says. And if you're, if you're here this morning and you're not fully convinced of the authority of God's Word, you may think this is crazy. But I'm here to tell you, 
that it's true. God's Word says that it's true. And God's Word doesn't lie, and it doesn't make mistakes. And it's not just a dream. You say, well, maybe it's just a dream and it never takes place. But no, that's not true because in verse 28 it says, All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. Everything that Daniel interpreted, everything that the dream said, happened. And so, yes, I want you to believe it's true. And even more than that, for those of you that are a little bit skeptical, we don't need this because the Bible's authority is enough on its own, but this is helpful for some of us, that there are extra-biblical historical documents. So historical documents that have been found in archaeological digs that aren't Scripture, that are Assyrian or Babylonian in nature, that talk about a poem written that talks about a king of Babylon losing his mind and going and doing crazy things for a while before being restored and returning. So I'm telling you, the Bible says this is true, and we have extra, outside of the Bible, historical documents that say that this is true as well. Point two, the king was exalted by God, and he was humbled by God as well. God was the one that brought him up, and God was the one that brought him down. Humbled in a humiliating way. And so then the question that we have to ask, I believe, is why? Why would God take this king and bring him up in such a great way and let him have such a great kingdom and let him have so much power and so much influence? Why would God even let King Nebuchadnezzar take over his people, right? I mean, that's part of the basis of this book is that King Nebuchadnezzar went to Jerusalem and Judah and, and took God's people captive. Why would God let a man do that and then all of a sudden reverse course and change his mind apparently and make the man crazy and lose all of the greatness that he had. And thankfully it tells us. Look in verse 17. I want you to see this both from Nebuchadnezzar speaking and from Daniel. So we'll look at verse 17 and verse 25. Verse 17, as Nebuchadnezzar was continuing to tell his dream, he said, The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Then look at verse 25. Daniel is, is telling him what's going to happen. It says that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you. And then we see the reason why. Till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. So we see in verse 17 and verse 25 when you put these two together, God takes all of these things away from Nebuchadnezzar. God humbles Nebuchadnezzar in this way so that the king, He says, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. And in verse 17, we saw not only so that King Nebuchadnezzar would know who was in charge, right? That's what it's saying there. King, this is happening so that you'll recognize who's truly in charge. But not only so the king would know, but verse 17 said that the living may know, that everyone would know who's truly in charge. Because I believe that not only does the king think that he's the one that really runs the show. But imagine that there were a lot of other people in the world that thought that he was really the one that ran the show. And so this is made apparent 
and clear to everyone. This is a public display that God is the one that's in control and not King Nebuchadnezzar. Point three, God made clear that he is the one that is in charge of all kingdoms and all things. God made clear that he is the one that's in charge of all kingdoms and all things. The king had failed to recognize this, so God made it clear to him. There were probably a lot of people that failed to recognize this, and so God made it clear to them. If you want to see what the fault looks like, look a little bit later in the chapter, verse 29. This is after he's had the dream, after Daniel's told him the interpretation. It says, At the end of twelve months, he, King Nebuchadnezzar, was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of of my majesty. And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And it says at that time, all the things that had been given to him in the dream happened. He goes crazy. He leaves the kingdom. He doesn't come back until he recognizes that God's the one that's in control. So, so here's the dream, right? The dream is there's this great, big, beautiful tree that is then chopped down. The interpretation is that the tree was King Nebuchadnezzar. He was lifted up by God and made great and powerful. When he didn't recognize who God was, he was chopped down. The reason is so that that the king and everyone else would know that God is the one that's truly in control of everything, that God is the one that is sovereign, that God is the one that has all power over all things. So I want to give you just quickly... Three points of application, because it's easy for us to say, all right, so that's what Daniel chapter 4 means. That's what it's talking about. But, but how does that change my life? What, is, why, what do I need to do differently now that I've seen this and recognized this? And there could be more things than this, but I want to give you at least three that to me stand out as very clear things, very clear application points from us. The first one is the recognition that God is always in control. I think that sometimes we can get caught up in things and we can forget this. But we need to remind ourselves often that God is the one that's in control. It looked like in Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar ran the show. It looked like in the world at this day and time, King Nebuchadnezzar ruled the show. He's the one that that had all the power and all the influence and he called the shots. But God made it clear in Babylon, the one that was in control was God. And it can seem the same to us, too. We, we talk about this. I hear Christians, I fall sometimes into this trap. We talk about, like, like the President of the United States or the United Nations Security Council or parliaments and kings and senators and representatives, they're the ones that truly have the power. They're the ones that, that run the world. We talk about it that way. Sometimes we think about it that way. But brothers and sisters, the truth is, while God has given them a lot of authority, and they do get to do a lot of things, ultimately they're not the ones that are in control. They don't run the show. God runs it. God's in control. And sometimes we can forget that. And how could we as Christians ever forget that God's the one that's in control? I pray that that's something that we realize here. That God is the one that's sovereign, who does anything that He wants. That He's the one that made the earth. That He's the one that made these men and women. Right? He made the men out of dust and women from the side of the men. That's, that's where we come from. 
We don't have authority over God. We don't rule things without God's help or authority. Last week I, I gave to you, I, I read from Isaiah 45, 5, and I, the first part of it, I want to read it again. It says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. And here in this text, in verse 17, this decree is given to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Brothers and sisters, I pray that as we read Daniel chapter 4, that our hearts are reassured that God is in control. He's the one that does what He wants when He wants. So that's kind of big picture sometimes. We, we forget that God's the one that's truly in control. I pray that we remember. But the second point of application plays off of that in a similar way, and it's that, that we personally need to be more humble. You know, I think that not only sometimes do we think that the president or the parliament or these groups of people are the ones that actually run the world, but sometimes I think that we can be like Nebuchadnezzar here. We do something good, right? We, we get a promotion at work, or we graduate from some school or program, uh, or we get some accolade or some recognition, and it's easy for us to get the big head. At least for me. Maybe not y'all. Puff out that chest and be like King Nebuchadnezzar walking around on the, on the roof. Look what I've built. Look what my hands have done. Look at my glory as he looks out across Babylon. And sometimes I can look at my life and do that. Look where I've come from. Look what I've done. Man, people need to recognize Zach Kilpatrick more. They need to think more of me. Brothers and sisters, we shouldn't ever have that sort of thought. We should always, we graduate from school, we get a promotion, we have some accolade. Our first thought should be, thank you, Lord, you've allowed me to do this. Now, I'm not, I'm not putting aside hard work and a good work ethic. These are biblical principles that we should work hard, that we should do our best at everything that we do. And certainly, God uses that. Brothers and sisters, don't think that we've done it on our own completely without Him. The one that made us, the one that sustains us, the one that if He took His control away from us, our lives would fall apart the one that does a million things for us every day that we don't recognize and cannot see, don't let us think that we've done what we've done without Him. We need to be more humble. We need to think about ourselves less. We need to expect people to praise us less. And of course, the other side of that coin is that we should be praising God more. And that's the last thing. We should be here for ourselves less and for the glory of God more. We need to speak about and praise and talk about God more than we do. We need to recognize God's in control. We need to be more humble and talk about ourselves and praise ourselves less. And we need to talk about God and praise God more. I can't help, as I've studied Daniel 4 this week, I've had a strong parallel in my mind of what we see in Daniel chapter 4 and what we see in Isaiah chapters 41 and 42. And you don't have to go there. We're not going to go through all of that. I'm not going to try and exposit that text. But I just want to give you a real, real quick overview because I think this is so helpful. At least it is for me. So in Isaiah chapter 41, it spends some time talking about some idol-worshipping people. 
lost people, worshiping idols, pagan gods, and things of that nature. And then in verse 42, in response to this idol worship, God sends this servant to all of these idol-worshiping people. And in verse 6, he's describing this servant and the role of this servant. In Isaiah 42, 6, it says, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. You see, there's this this servant that God raises up. The servant was nothing on their own, but God raises them up. I believe fully that the servant he's describing here in Isaiah 42 is Israel. And so God took Israel from nothing, slaves in Egypt, And made them this great and powerful nation. This world power that everybody could see and everybody could recognize. Very similar to King Nebuchadnezzar. And the question, why? Why did God do this for Israel? Why did He bring them up to such great heights? And here we see a very specific role that they were supposed to play. A light for the nations. Open the eyes that are blind. To bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in the darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other. Their role, part of their role was to show the world, to show the lost people, to show people that worship pagan, worthless gods and idols who the real God was. That people could look at Israel and say, that God, their God, is a real God. Look what He's done for them. Not so that Israel could walk around and say, look what we've done for ourselves. I believe His will for Nebuchadnezzar was the same, that Nebuchadnezzar would have been brought up to such great heights and been the king of Babylon, and he would have said, look what God has done. But he didn't. Instead he said, look what I've done. And brothers and sisters, I believe that sometimes we fall into this same trap. But we have to recognize that God's word is clear that this is our role as well. That we are to be ambassadors for Christ. Going to the world, recognizing that where you are and that the positions that you have and the the responsibilities that you have and the authority that you have and the influence that you have wasn't given to you so you would walk around and say, everybody look at me. But so you would walk around and say, everybody look at God. He's the one that made this happen. So that those of us that have been made new by the blood of Jesus Christ, those of us who have gone from sinful people to redeemed people, those of us that have new hearts because of the grace of God, those of us that have new lives and the promise of eternal life that we wouldn't walk around, those of us that know who God is wouldn't walk around saying, look at us, but would walk around saying, look at Him, so that those people that are in the dark could see the light. So that those people that are living in darkness and in prison, these people that are in spiritual prison to sin, would see how they could be saved. Brothers and sisters, our lives should be a light that shines and points to Jesus. So I ask you, if you are this morning somebody that that is regenerate, right? you are born again, 
you have a new heart, you have faith in Jesus Christ, if that is you, then evaluate your life and answer this question. Does that new life that Christ has given you point other people to Christ, or does it point to you? Do you praise Him, or do you praise yourself? Do you think about Him, or do you think about yourself? Brothers and sisters, Christ has not done these things for us so that people would think that we're great. He has done these things for us to reconcile us to God and so that other people could see how great He is. So if you're here and you're a Christian and you recognize that your life does not point to Christ, I pray that you would repent of that this morning and that you would commit yourself and pray and say, God, help me to point to you more and to me less. But I also pray that if you're here this morning and you recognize that your life doesn't point to Christ at all and that's because you don't have a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, then maybe you've been coming to church for a long time and playing the game, but you're not actually saved. You're not. You haven't been made new by the blood of Christ. That this morning that you would recognize your need for that. You would recognize that you're nothing without Him and how greatly you need Him and how beautiful His love is that He sent His Son to die so that you could have a relationship with Him. If you have questions about that, stick around for a minute afterward. If you've got somewhere to go, text or call me later. I would love to, to give you some biblical advice to show you in the Scriptures what it means to give your life to Christ, to make Him Lord of your life. But this morning, I want us to end by praying and asking that the Lord would make these things clear to us, but also thanking Him for the great God He is. So y'all, if y'all would pray with me. Father God, you are so good and so powerful and so amazing. And Father, you have given us such good lives. Father, maybe not the life that Nebuchadnezzar lived on this earth, but Father, we have so many blessings. And Lord, you have brought us to such great places. And Lord, this morning, we ask for your forgiveness and we repent for all the times that we have thought that we did that on our own the times that we have taken those great things and, and used them to point to ourselves instead of you, Father, we repent of that. I pray that you would help us to not do that, Father. We would not be Nebuchadnezzar parading around, expecting everyone to praise us, Father, that we would be humble servants of the one who deserves everyone's praise. And that even when people say, look at you and what you've done, we would say, no, don't look at me. Let me tell you about the God that's allowed me to do this. Because, Father, you're worthy of that. Father, help us to be better about that. Thank you for being a God that's worthy of that. Lord, as we think this weekend about independence and freedom, Lord, I am thankful that you have allowed us to live in the United States. Lord, in a nation where we, where we do have the freedom to worship you openly and corporately. Father, where we do have the freedom to speak your name and to share with other people openly how great and amazing you are. But Father, we do think, even as Brother Shane mentioned earlier, we think about the greater freedom. Lord, that even if we were restricted in some other ways from having freedoms here on this earth, Lord, that our freedom from sin, and our freedom from guilt, and our freedom from darkness and evil, Father, being brought into the light, Father, that all of these freedoms, Lord, that they are the greater freedoms to celebrate. Lord, independence from 
guilt and worry and fear and punishment and hell. Father, thank you for sending your Son to offer these to us. So Lord, I pray. I pray that you would be with us here today. Those that need to recognize you more, those that have never recognized you as Lord and Savior Father, send your Spirit that he would work in their hearts to bring them to the point of giving their lives to you. Father, those of us that know you but that need to point to you more, Father, send your Spirit who already lives in us to call us to do these things. Lord, that we would not be living for ourselves, but we'd be living for you and your glory. Lord, thank you for your love, your grace, and your mercy, and thank you for the chance to study this word together this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, We will have Wednesday evening services at 6 o'clock here in the sanctuary. Everyone is welcome, encouraged, invited to come back for that. And uh, if not, we hope to see you next Sunday. The plan will stay the same, 9 o'clock drive-in. 10 o'clock inside service next Sunday. I pray y'all have uh, a wonderful rest of your holiday weekend. Thank you for coming this morning.